Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is your friend Paul Ollinger coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia with another episode of Crazy Money. This is a special encore presentation of my interview with Lisa Bernbach. She's the author of many books, but probably most notably for her book, The Official Preppy Handbook, which was a cultural phenomenon back in the early 1980s. I remember this book. I clearly remember my cousin getting this book for Christmas. 1980 or 1981, and being really interested, maybe too interested, in the contents. And I was like, oh my God, preppiness, what is that all about? And it is just an incredible encapsulation of a period of time that touches on everything from class and clothes and money and comfort and casualness. And Lisa will go all into that in this conversation. I'll tell you more about her in just a moment. But first, I want to say welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. They are Julia Pascarella, Robert Watkins, Mike Ember, Ariel or Ariel Lockshaw, Olushula, Adiason, Ellen Sullivan, Stacia Leach, Matan or Matan. Pick whichever one you like better, Stacia. And of course, Fred Leach, the running man himself. That is what's going on on Facebook. If you want to connect with other members of this group, if you want to suggest topics for the program, I welcome your feedback there, or you can email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. That's paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Speaking of that email, a lot of people have been using it in the past seven days to offer me feedback on the most recent episode, our Buckhead versus Atlanta episode that came out last week. It's been a very popular episode. It's brought in a lot of new listeners into the podcast. I want to say welcome to all of you who are new, and I welcome your feedback and input on that as well. A lot of people had some things to say that they were appreciative for the most part for the topic, for the preparation that went into the discussion, but some of them had some uh, pretty interesting thoughts on my point of view on the topic, and that's fine. You're more than welcome to disagree with me. I just hope to do that in a respectful and intelligent way. So by all means, bring the feedback. You want to tell me I'm dumb, that's fine. Just do it in a clever way. All right, let's see. Oh, I've got some show dates coming up that you might be aware of. If you're in Atlanta or want to come to Atlanta, the Best of Atlanta Showcase at the Laughing Skull Lounge is always a great show. Eight or nine comics doing about 10 minutes each for a fun variety of comedic perspectives. I'll be on that show on October 28th, the 29th, and November 4th. I will also be performing in the Red Clay Comedy Festival. I'll be hosting one of the shows in the Red Clay Comedy Festival in East Atlanta Village on Friday, November 5th. I don't know which one yet, but that festival is as good as almost any festival you're ever going to want to go to. Super hip area town. A lot of great comics come in for that. Speaking of other super great festivals, I will be in the Boston Comedy Festival on November 9th. And then at the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Tennessee, December 3rd and 4th. All right, let's talk about Lisa Bernbach. She is the author of over 20 books, including the official Preppy Handbook. That book sold more than a million copies and has been cited as an inspiration to the founder of J. Crew and is thought to have boosted the growth of L.L. Bean, which is probably why I had a pair of ill-fitting duck boots for most of my college career. I should have returned them. I bought a pair of duck boots from L.L. Bean, and I wanted them so badly because I thought they would cement my sartorial reputation early in my college career, but they were too big. And back then, we didn't have easy returns for e-commerce, so I kept them. And for four plus years, I wore duck boots that were too damn big. Wish I would have returned them. Anyway, in 
the official preppy handbook. Lisa celebrated, skewered, and democratized the concept of preppiness with writing that the New York Times described as affectionate but acerbic. I buy that description. When I picked the book back up in preparation for this interview, I found her reflections on money, fashion, status, and the social hierarchy as insightful and hilarious today as they were 40 years ago. Although I didn't quite have the worldliness or the perspective to judge it through that lens at the time. But I knew. I was a pretty precocious 11-year-old. In this interview, we talk about the preppy aesthetic, Connecticut, and how the world has and hasn't changed since she launched this juggernaut of a book into being. She is celebrated for her keen eye and sharp wit. Lisa Bernbach is an award-winning journalist, cultural commentator, and best-selling author. She's written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, Parade, Rolling Stone, etc., etc., And I am very grateful to her for spending this time with me. And I got to be on her podcast in the meantime. And she came back to do a panel on the episode we did about the movie Wall Street. So happy to have her in the crazy money family. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Lisa Bernbach. Lisa Bernbach, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Now let's go back in time and set the scene. It's 1980 in America. Jimmy Carter is in the White House. Hostages are being held in Iran. The top TV shows are MASH, Dallas, Dukes of Hazard, The Facts of Life, and Magnum P.I. Wow. The two longest running number one singles are Call Me by Blondie and Lady by Kenny Rogers. And Diet Coke doesn't even exist yet, Lisa. What? <laughs> where, what? Is where, that possible? Where did you live and where were you working? Okay. In 1980, I was not drinking Diet Coke, but I guess because it didn't exist. I was not drinking Tab or Fresca. I need to say that right away. In 1980, I was a writer at the Village Voice newspaper where I'd been for the previous year. And I was living in a one-bedroom apartment on 71st and 2nd with a balcony with a view of the East River that cost $406 nice. in a demand building. That would be a great find today. What does $406 get me today in New York City? A Peking duck. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So you're a writer at the Village Voice. How did the official preppy handbook come about? I'm going to try to give you the abbreviated story, but the real story is kind of fascinating. It was a fluke. It was a fluke in every respect. I was writing for The Village Voice. My boss and I, my editor, boss, whatever you want to call him, and I had begun a weekly series of light bulb jokes. This was the dawn of light bulb jokes, and we had a running contest for submissions. And it was really fun. It got people energized who might not ordinarily get interactive with the Village Voice newspaper, which was America's great and first alternative news weekly. And we went to a publishing house to pitch it as a book. How many blah, blah, blahs does it take to change a light bulb? And while I was pitching it, someone at the office took me aside and said, we have an idea to do a book about preppies. And this is weird that you're here because your name was just suggested to us and we really want you to write a book about preppies. So that sort of distracted us from our pitch meeting. And they had an idea at Workman Publishing to do a book called The Preppy Catalog, which was an itemized, maybe like a parody of the L.L. Bean catalog, 
a list of actual things, an LLB Norwegian sweater, a duck decoy, a wooden tennis racket, you know, all the stuff, all the merch. But it seemed to me, if I were going to write this book, I would rather it be about the context and why. Why ducks? Why those boots? Why topsiders? Why Lacoste? So it turned into a bigger, a better, I think, but way bigger, harder book to write because how do you write a guide to life for people who won't be offended? You know, there are a lot of rules and, and I was very strict and my co-authors were very strict and you can't do this, you can do that. And to me, the fact that I was 21 years old made it that much easier because I have to say, I could never be so definitive now. My children have <laughs> totally deprived me of any authority. <laughs> so now I would say, well, you could wear khakis, maybe, <laughs> you know, suit yourself. I don't think I could really be so emphatic. Why do you think the idea of preppiness was a legitimate enough foundation for a book in 1980? What was it about wow. preppies that made these people think it would sell? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is that it was intended to be a humor book. I never thought anybody would take the book seriously. And when I said whatever I said, you know, we wear stripes, we don't wear pictures of our dog on our chest. I didn't think anybody would read the book, underline it and say, oh, I want to do this. It wasn't written that way. It was written, I mean, in my mind and our minds, it was written to be tongue in cheek. But what I did in that book, and I feel I've done in subsequent books, is write with humor, but true nonfiction, true nonfiction. I mean, there was research involved, and, you know, this is where you go to meet people like you in Atlanta, and this is where you shop for khakis in Nashville, and this is where you get arugula salad in San Francisco. You know, right. it was an effort before the computer. Right. Yes. Well, that's what yes. I was going to say. Yes. In a pre-internet world, you've got all these notes about the schools, the bars, the restaurants, the shops in all these cities right. around the country. And let me read about Atlanta. It says, you described the Lovett School here in Atlanta. Their rival school, Westminster, has slightly better academic reputation, but less fun-loving students. And I would say that remains true to this day. How did you gather this information you had to actually pick up the phone and talk to people, right? Oh, yes. Yes. By the way, that's why one of my favorite scenes in any movie is in All the President's Men, the scene of Woodward and Bernstein doing research using card catalogs in the Library of Congress. I, too, have done <laughs> research in the Library of Congress. I started writing books when you had to go to libraries and borrow books and talk to people and wear out your shoe leather. And... I need to say, not only did we get it right, but I had three co-authors, one from outside Boston, one from Connecticut, which is one of the, you know, the motherland of preptum, mm -hmm. and one from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And everybody between Princeton and Columbia and Brown, wherever, where the four of us had gone to college. We knew people elsewhere. We called contacts. Obviously, we did a pretty good job. So however we did it, I mean, and a lot of it we knew. Right. 
<laughs> things we might have made up or overemphasized, but all in a good cause. Yeah, I reread it and I also read the subsequent book, True Prep, that came out a decade ago over the past couple of weeks. And I was really surprised, one, to see how substantive the writing is, like seriously thorough on a variety of topics and then super in-depth on the details of boarding school and boarding school life, prep school life. And so much so that I posted on Facebook asking if anybody had a copy because I couldn't get one off of Amazon in sufficient time. A buddy of mine from business school who's from Italy said he had a copy. And I said, why do you have a copy? He said, well, before I went to boarding school in the United States, I was told I had to read this. So he still got it. I was struck by how much writing there is and how dead on accurate it was by my recollection and by what remains true to this day. Also, there's dozens of laugh out loud moments. Uh, Thank you. Was it supposed to be a celebration or was it satire? I'm going to say a little of each. The first book was my, I guess you would say my instructions were, a loving look with my tongue in my cheek. There's probably a German word for just that thing, but that was what I was asked to do. And I really thought the only times I'd seen the word preppy used in popular culture, the first time was in Love Story, as I detailed Mm. in the book. The first time I heard someone use it in a declarative sentence, you have your own library preppy um, in Love Story. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's the first time. It's not even a momentous one. But from the time that Love Story, the movie came out, which was either 68 or 69, I think, to the time that I wrote the preppy handbook. I have to say that preppies were always depicted as assholes. Always. Mm -hmm. The rich brat. Whoever James Spader plays in a movie. Well, basically, yes. Whoever James Spader plays is that. Occasionally Rob Lowe. Occasionally some blonde monster. Um, (laughs) Some genetic uh, freak. Yeah. Right out of Hitler's laboratory. 1970. So I thought that who would buy the book would be dyed in the wool preppies. Mm -hmm. And I thought everyone else in the world hated preppies. Oh, I'll tell you who's a good example. In the wonderful movie called Breaking Away, there were the townie guys who were entering an underdog team of bicycle riders for the Little 500 at Indiana University. And then there was the fraternity team that was bratty and rich, led by Dennis Quaid, but they were good looking. But anyway, the point being that the obnoxious fratty and sorority people, like in Animal House, the clean cut ones were the preppies. (laughs) And they were always wrong because it was the slobs who were often the preppies. And the way Hollywood has shown rich people, other than, let's say, the Philadelphia story, all wrong. All wrong, 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 wrong. Mm. That's much more nouveau riche, you know. Right. A lot of very riche people keep it on the DL. Let's talk about that aesthetic because that was something that I was unfamiliar with until I lived in New York. Where did you grow up, Paul? I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, in the middle, upper middle class suburbs of Atlanta. And I remember reading the preppy handbook at my cousin's house and going like, wow, I was more aspirational than I was of the genre. Uh And I think I associated with rich kids, but never internalized the nuance of sort of like that New England frugality that you talk about 
that money is always there, but you don't talk about it. It's like the Irish setter or the Labrador. I can't remember which dog you mentioned. It's like the dog that's always there next to your recliner with your grandpa's pipe smoking, but you don't talk about it. That would be considered to be garish, right? Uncomfortable, wrong, bad, garish, vulgar, Mm. coarse. Yes. It's not so much about flashing wealth. It's about having the confidence in yourself to wear what you know works and not worry about, you know, what the newest thing is. You go with the classics. Absolutely. In fact, I think we should take it up a notch and say, it's not only not to worry about the newest thing, it's about repeating what worked for mommy and daddy and (laughs) what worked for grandmother and grandfather, because you're borrowing all their old ideas. You're going to their alma mater. You're a member of the same country club or golf club. You're going to marry someone who, you know, you might have a big love affair with a non-preppy. This is the old days. I've amended it for the right. 21st century, but we'll talk about that in a second too. Yeah. You could fall in love with, you know, that ethnic person who is just so sexy or, and a Catholic. So for, or Catholic right. or so forbidden right. or has curly hair or is having a bat mitzvah. You can do all of that, but sadly you'll probably marry Mimsy. Because it's preordained. But that was then. Things have changed quite a bit. Yeah. But the thing about money, and I was really happy when you wrote to me about being on this podcast, I would really like for once and for all to explain the way preppies think about money. Let's have it. It's so misunderstood. And I feel like. No one's listening to me. Now, of course, right now in the world, no one is actually listening to me and I don't blame them. But the money thing, okay. My mother is 90 now. We talked about my grandmother and her clothes. She owned a beautiful mink coat, which she never wore. She wore a sensible lined raincoat forever. Grandma, why don't you wear your fur coat? No, no. And she walked everywhere in New York in the winter. She'd walk from her house 20 blocks or more to our house. If she'd splurred, she'd take a bus. Is the attitude that you don't want to be show-offy. Show-offy is not nice, which is almost Mm -hmm. the worst thing you can say about anyone. It's rude. It shows insecurity when you have to drive the latest car. And, you know, and there's something great about having not caring, I guess, just not caring. If your car is an old car, you know, so be it. Now, there are a lot of people who disagree with me, and there are a lot of people who get a new car every year or every few years. That's fine. But, you know, it's also fine to be frugal. But you also see sort of the classics coming back. Try to find a Jeep Wagoneer on the internet. They cost, you know, like $140,000, like a 1978 Jeep Wagoneer or a refurbished Bronco from like 1975. People are spending $300,000 on these classic cars because they capture that, that aesthetic, you know? Yes, it's that aesthetic, that moment in time, that sense of American... Goodness, 
I think that in the 20th century in particular, I mean, you think of all the changes and developments in the world in the 20th century, but America was always a beacon of good. Can doism was kind of a, an export, and Europeans and Asians loved American made things, loved American cars. The Japanese are crazy for preppy stuff, including, you know, clothes that were developed on Nantucket Island, a tiny little island off Massachusetts. JFK, you know, he was gorgeous and he was sporty and he was manly. And And he'd be canceled today if he were around. He would be canceled. He would be canceled. (laughs) In a minute. (laughs) And so would uh, at least one of his brothers that I can think of. Yes. But there was something very young and vibrant about America. We explored space and we started the Peace Corps and everything was good and hopeful. And that aesthetic is kind of like mac and cheese to us now. You know, it's yummy, it's satisfying, it's comforting, reassuring. I wrote a tweet. I'm active on Twitter. A couple of years ago, I think it was, I wrote, I miss station wagons. That must have been retweeted (laughs) a thousand times. I miss my father more than station wagons, but I miss station wagons, maybe driven by my father. Now that would be, that would be the dream. But I do miss a lot of the old ways. And in a preppy world, those old ways also really include manners and how we treat one another. And in addition to thinking that preppies are just rich jerks, I want people to know that etiquette, which sounds like a fancy word, is a word for how we treat one another and with courtesy. It's not about knowing your fish knife from your butter knife. All given up that one. (laughs) Right, right. I think we've given that one up. I think we've given up the palate cleanser, Mm. the little... Finger bowl. uh, Yeah. You know, I don't think you see that kind of thing much anymore. But say hello to your doorman if you live in an apartment building. Right. He's the person. Say hello to him. Don't look at your phone when you're at dinner with someone else. Yeah. Well, I mean, the phone. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. Along these lines, you say in the very first page of the Preppy Handbook, you say that in a true democracy, everyone can be upper class and live in Connecticut. What did you mean by that? I mean, obviously, that is silly to think that class is that. Connecticut is a state of mind. Come on, that's what you meant. Yeah, that too. Connecticut. Okay, let me describe Connecticut in Preppy terms. It's got all four seasons because it's really considered New England, just over New York, which is mid-Atlantic. But so it's still mild, hot in the summer, mild in the spring and fall, cold in the winter. That means you can wear all your clothes in the course of the year. It means you have sweater weather for many, many months. It means layering, which is, you know, what preppies live for. And it's got a lot of coast. So there's a lot of sailing, boating, drinking by the beach, swimming, and prep schools, lots of good prep schools like Choate and Hotchkiss in Connecticut, and towns you've heard of Mm -hmm. called Greenwich and Darien and New Canaan. And, oh, what's happening to me? I think my voice is changing. I'm getting a lockjaw. (laughs) New Canaan, 
yeah, real white. And, I mean, it's Southport. You know, there are all these lovely little towns with lovely people who have garden clubs and so on. And you can take the train to your hedge fund job in the city. Correct. And some of them are now in Greenwich. So you can right. just. Well, tool. as long as they're not in Stamford, because that would be a crime. That would be tough. It's so urban. Yeah. So preppy culture was all about the wasp look and lifestyle. Was it ironic that the defining book on this aesthetic was written by a Jewish woman? It was. It was also, I think, what made it possible because I think you need to be inside and outside to gain the vision. It's like being a drone on top of something. You can see angles that you can't see when you're standing in front of a building. I was raised in Manhattan. I went to private schools. I grew up with a lot of Jewish people and a lot of not Jewish people. I went to sleepaway camp and Andover summer session. And New England is my, you know, sort of second home, I guess you would say. My family had a house in Connecticut and it made it possible. Two of the people who worked on the book were WASP and two of us were Jewish. And you know, it's the same irony, if you will, of Ralph Lauren being the haberdasher, the number one sort of preppy haberdasher. I have to tell you, Paul, I've had a lot of anti-Semitism thrown my way, as has he, I know, because when my second book on the subject, not the second book I wrote, there were 20 in between, but when True Prep came out, I got a couple of House George Soros, which of course is code for you're Jewish. <laughs> right. Or, well, the international cabal that he runs also. And the, right. And John Kennedy Jr. is alive too and running with Donald Trump, I heard. Then the other one is, I hope you and Ralph Lipschitz are friends, you right. know, yeah. stuff like that. So anti-Semitism is certainly around. I think maybe I can't speak for Ralph Lauren, but I can say definitively that Lisa Birnbach is my given name. I didn't change it to be more ethnic. And number two. Um, That's what people are looking for these days. How can you be more yeah. ethnic? Yeah, exactly. And then I do think that it helps to be an outsider. I mean, it also helps to know a lot of insiders because sure. I could not have written this book without having experienced all that I did. What was the motivating factor in writing True Prep? The sequel, if you will, that came out in 2010, 30 years later. 30 years later, yeah. So what happened was I admired the work of Chip Kidd, who's a wonderful, talented book designer. And when I joined Facebook about, I don't know, however many, 12 years ago, mm -hmm. I reached out to him. I didn't know how to go about Facebook. I had children, but I don't think they were talking to me at the time. So. I reached out to him and he said, is it really you? I said, yes. Are you really you? Yes. We had lunch. He was wearing so much tartan. <laughs> I, I, I was joyful uh, by how much tartan he wore. And at the end of lunch, he said, how come you never did another one? I said, because it's fine as it is. It stands the test of time. And he said, well, if you ever wanted to do another book about preppies, I would be honored to work on it with you. So I thought about it. And I thought, I really don't want to do another book. It's exalted even to me, the preppy handbook. I sometimes can't believe that the publishing part, the success of the book, 
the numbers of books sold, the afterlife it's had were all so special to me. I didn't want to ruin it. But then I went online and found out that people all over the place were wondering why there wasn't another book. And I found out that there were many, many Facebook pages, Tumblr pages, blogs that were dedicated to this little book that I wrote. So that's when I decided, okay, Patagonia, cell phones, (laughs) gay people being out of the closet. That's right. Preptum is now multiracial, inclusive, and gender fluid. So, Oh, let me tell you this. So also the other thing was the Obamas are so preppy, especially Barack, more even than Michelle, because he actually went to private school. So we put them in the book, True Prep, as part of the pantheon of great preppies. James Taylor, Stephen Colbert, the Obamas, Anderson Cooper. And people got pissed off about (laughs) seeing the Obamas in there. My God, we have changed. If we haven't changed for the better, I don't know what to say to you. I mean, I think there are lots of things that I miss. Gentility, I miss. Mm -hmm. The modern world. Every time I hear a certain president speak, I get sickened. But not preppy, by the way. Not preppy, even though he went to private school. Mm -hmm. Not preppy in any, any way. But the thing is that if preppy is only white, Anglo Saxon, Protestant, you're missing out on so much. The music, the culture, the warmth. How about that? How about people who say, I love you and mean it? Think about it. That's a nice look that wasps didn't always have. Right. We have become a much more rich country for all the contributions of all the cultures. I mean, it used to be in 1980 when the Preppy Handbook came out, you know, you get prepackaged salsa in the dairy counter <laughs> at the supermarket and put chips in it and say, we're having Mexican tonight, Jackson. Huh? But now... Preppies really enjoy cooking or they really enjoy eating Chinese food and Japanese food. You know, it's a way to be more open-minded. Well, America's more integrated. We talk about things that we would never even acknowledge 40 years ago. It's all part of the public discourse today where before it was swept under the rug and only discussed in hushed tones in the broom closet. Correct. For example, we have a section in True Prep about where gay preppies tend to live. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't meant as a gotcha. It was meant as a helpful list for people who are moving or have to find a new, you know, for whatever reason, or looking for a job somewhere, you might as well live where you'll meet somebody that you'll like. It's not meant to be, get out of here and go to Palm Springs. It's meant to be, hey, you'll find Topsy in Palm Springs and you'll have a better life for it. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also interesting you talk about the stage of life too, because in 1980, we were all much younger and and life happens and you address questions like facelifts and rehab. And the most important question of all, should you wear white to your third wedding? I know. (laughs) I haven't decided yet. (laughs) I have to say, I'm really pleased that you got the depth of what I was trying to do with True Prep, because I really 
it's been 10 years. I guess it's conceivable that there would be another edition, another updated edition of the Preppy Handbook. But I feel like you could live till you're elderly with this one, with True Prep. I feel like it could take you hand in hand through funerals, through facelifts, through estates and wills, through trusts, through bankruptcy, and definitely through crime and rehabilitation. One of the things that's changed even in the past 10 years, but certainly since 1980, is that, you know, the 1% has gotten more one percentier, and that the notion of what real wealth is today is much higher than it used to be. How do you think Silicon Valley and the West Coast have changed the notion of sort of what it means to be successful and to have status in the U.S. today? I think the wealth that Silicon Valley has grown for Silicon Valley has changed everybody's perception of wealth. Everyone's perception of philanthropy is seen through the prism of what Steve Jobs left, nothing except to his wife, who's a philanthropist, what the Gateses are doing, what the Google people are doing, what your former boss, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are doing. You know what? I would put a lot of emphasis on talking about privacy and how much privacy people have lost Mm -hmm. due to the constant news cycle, due to the fact that if you have a phone or a computer, you can call yourself a journalist and start posting unvetted stuff, or you can be nosy and take pictures of people who don't know they're being photographed. And all this stuff happens all the time. And now we sort of know how the sausage is made a little bit. We don't know how the engineers did the AI. We don't know how they accrued their wealth exactly, but we know who the people are. You know, it used to be, you didn't even really know what your father did for a living. He went to an office and he came back and he <laughs> had his first martini and, right. you know. Yeah, read but, the paper. Uh, yeah, and the paper, excuse me. But now we know who runs the movie studios. We know who runs the giant tech companies. We've seen drone pictures of Mark Zuckerberg water skiing in Lake Tahoe. I mean, there's there's no privacy. Maybe that's a good thing because maybe, you know, sunlight is the disinfectant, as they say. But the money, I think, is a real problem. Not only the gap between the haves and have-nots or the wealth gap, but uh, I think for impressionable young people, number one, they want the money more than they want the process or the doing of it Mm. or the making of a fortune. They just want the money. And number two, I think people who don't accomplish, who don't have their own plane, who don't have $50 million by the time they're 35 could feel like they failed. And that's just wrong. Not to make it all about the preppy metaphor, but I do think it's interesting that the preppy thing felt accessible. It felt like you could be in the club if you worked hard and did the right things and behaved with a certain amount of decorum. Whereas today, being in the club means flying from a smaller airport, going to Yellowstone Club. It means going to places that are astronomically expensive and not open to everybody. 
Not that wasp culture or these country clubs were open to everybody, but it was like, if you were in the 1%, you felt comfortable. Today, intra 1% competition seems self-defeating and pathetic, where somebody who's worth, you know, a lot of money but can't fly private feels like a failure. Well, I do think that's a great point. And the idea that little kids in their elementary school might hear something like, wings up it, <laughs> so I have to leave now, you know. They're worse things. They're worse things. I mean, when you hear about children who are sitting in a Taco Bell parking lot in order to siphon off Wi-Fi so they can go to school remotely, mm. that puts it all in perspective. But yeah, it's obnoxious. It's obnoxious one upmanship. It is saying, I'll meet you at Teterboro, which is code for we're flying privately, sure. or oh, I'll meet you in Aspen. When's your flight? Oh, you're flying JetBlue? Oh. You know, I mean, it's just... But it's premium economy. We're flying premium economy. So that's premium pretty good. Premium economy, all the blue chips I want, all the blue Terra <laughs> chips I want. But you know what? Those people will never be satisfied. They need an art collection. They need a curator. They need to put their names on buildings. They need to have a family foundation, which to me is the ultimate, ultimate luxury. Yeah. I don't know. Are they happier than the rest of us? They have more toys. I don't know. I don't think it's good. My strongest word. I don't think it's nice of them. Mm. I don't think they're raising their kids right. Although I saw the movie Social Dilemma, and I guess now that they've made a fortune on us, they're forbidding their children to use the same programs and machines that they got us all addicted to. Yeah. I worked with a couple of people in that documentary. So they're all right. They're good guys. They're good guys, but it is interesting. It is interesting to see somebody who made hundreds of millions of dollars all of a sudden get religion on. Yeah. All of a sudden get religion. Let me ask you this uh, before I let you go besides true prep and the official preppy handbook for our Mm -hmm. listeners who were huge fans. And when I posted looking for people that might lend me their copy of the official preppy handbook. I got a huge response with great enthusiasm from people of the Gen X life era. I hope they enjoy this conversation and don't think I'm just some old fuddy duddy. (laughs) Nonsense. So besides true prep and the preppy handbook, (laughs) which of your books that you've written is your favorite that you would like people to dig into and enjoy? The nonfiction books I've written are sadly probably out of print and definitely out of date. I tried to take the same approach. True, nonfiction, these are facts I researched, but I'm telling you in such a way that you'll laugh. I wrote a college guidebook and Mm -hmm. I read that you wrote an MBA guidebook. I did. And you know what? As I was reading the preppy handbook again last week, I realized that I was aping every single thing that you did unconsciously in the writing of that book. I wish I had done it more explicitly because the book would have been better because as I went back, I was like, this was exactly what I was trying to do. I didn't even realize it. But anyway, so yes. I wrote a college guidebook called Lisa Birnbach's College Book in which I reinvented, in my opinion, the college guidebook because when I was applying to a college, there were just the Barron's books and pretty dry this is how many students go there. This is right. the average SAT, so on and so forth. I wrote a book that 
I went to every school myself. So I visited schools in 50 states. I not only talked to students and professors and presidents and admissions directors, but I was in my 20s. I hung out with students and said, okay, what is it like at this school? What drugs do people person? do here? What drugs do people do? Right. How much weight do you gain when you go here? <laughs> All kinds of important data. Which is the best place to live? Which is the worst place to live on campus? Mm-hmm. What professors are easy A's? Which professors? All that. And it was a huge success. And I did it a bunch of times. And then I wrote a book called Going to Work which was that same approach to corporate life. How do you know when you're a history major in college, do you know you want to be an account executive in pudding? (laughs) Uh, You know, do you know what an engineer does at 3M? Where should you really live to be a fully contented person and to be able to hike if that's what you love or to be able to shop if that's what you love? And what is a power watch if you are working in advertising in Chicago? So there were all these, I went a lot of places, Ford Motor, Covington and Burling, Law Firm in Atlanta, Mm. 3M, Drexel Burnham. By the time I was publishing this book- Milk it had already blown it up. Correct. (laughs) So, you know, I'd have like a three-hour- interview with the CEO who was then removed. Right. You know, just and those were the slower days. Mm. But anyway, that book didn't do so well because it's like comedy. You know, once you do a joke for six months, the person central to the premise dies and you can't tell it in the present tense anymore. And you're like, okay, there goes that bit. Yeah. Well tell me about five things with Lisa Bernbach. So in 2018 I found myself becoming kind of depressed over what was happening in this country and the attitudes of people. People were getting meaner. The discourse was getting meaner. There was cyberbullying like nothing. And I don't know. I felt like I couldn't write. I didn't feel funny. I felt just miserable. So I decided to copy someone I know who was in therapy and whose therapist said, just write a gratitude journal every week or every night or something. And just, even if you just say you're grateful that your bed is comfortable, I mean, it's something. And so I started it as a little blog and then I started interviewing people and I get great guests just as you do. And the funny thing is, is that we talk about whatever it is we want to talk about, if they have a new book out or a new film or whatever. But the five things part, which comes at the end, is sort of what people look forward to because you find out about somebody in a different way. Oh, he likes tuna fish sandwiches. Oh, (laughs) Joe Connison, who's on this week, who's an investigative journalist, likes a really fancy shaving cream that he says makes a morning shave like a whole Mm. other experience. That's cool. I've learned so many interesting tips from my guests. And some of them say it is a really pleasurable exercise to come up with five things. 
I learned a lot about Christopher Buckley, one of my favorite authors. Yes. Speaking of brilliant, dry writers, this guy's yeah. top of the heap. He is he top of the heap. Lots of thoughtful stuff at the end of that episode. Yes. I thought it was really a pleasure to talk to him. And also, thank you for smoking. It's one of the funniest. Hilarious. Hilarious. Oh, I know. I know. So that was a treat. And, you know, I've done it for two plus years. I don't know if I'll do it forever, but I certainly enjoy the chance, the opportunity of interviewing people. So the podcast is called Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. It's available everywhere podcasts are distributed. Where else can our listeners find out more about you? Oh, they could go to lisabernbach.com, my cleverly titled website. <laughs> Very clever. And they can read all about me. They can ask me questions. They can listen to the podcast. They can read my blog. They can discover that I'm really a nicer person than they thought. Well, I never thought you weren't a nice person. And this interview has proved that you're even nicer than I thought you were. So uh-huh. thank you. Thank you, Lisa. This you, It was Paul. a real treat to have you on and to go back and enjoy your brilliant writing from 40 years ago that stands up brilliantly today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I think that your career is fascinating. After the election, because I'm putting everything into that, because when we get off the phone, I will be text banking and people will say, stop. (laughs) But I will be doing this all afternoon and tomorrow. But maybe you'll talk on my podcast. I'd be delighted and honored. Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, that was a lot of fun. And I hope you agree. And if you uh, don't agree, I guess, um, well, you're wrong because that was fun. I enjoyed it. Here are my takeaways. Let's get to the takeaways, shall we? Number one, forget about pink and green or penny loafers. The number one accessory in preppiness is confidence. It's an attitude of expressing oneself traditionally without worrying that you're not sporting the latest trends. And I had forgotten that angle. That was a big theme in the book. And of course, ironically, I'm the one that adopted preppiness because I totally wanted to follow the trend. I completely wanted an identity to embrace. And I chose that. Anyway, The reliability of money. This is the second takeaway. I thought it was really interesting that she's talked about that money was always there in preppy culture, like the family dog, reliable, like the family dog. And I think that does go back to frugality. Not that you don't have nice things, but that if you want intergenerational money, if you want your kids and grandkids to understand that there's going to be money there, like the family dog, not only do you have to live within your means for your lifetime, but you have to get your kids to embrace your values and to also drive less than they could drive and vacation less than they could vacation. And you can't always get the new Oxford cloth shirt. You wear the tattered one because you want to keep that money around for the next generation, like a dog. Lastly, most importantly, manners and civility. I thought this was interesting that this is about culture. You know, culture is supposed to be about, if you're refined, it's supposed to mean that you're above pettiness. And that doesn't mean that you're better than everybody else. It just means that you are confident enough to avoid the pettiness. And now more than ever, we need to practice manners and civility for our fellow humans. Not fake civility or perfunctory manners either. I mean really about listening and trying to see the human and other human beings with whom we may vociferously agree, but with whom we share too much in common to uh, write off. And remember, it's not just good for the other, it's good for us. That is it for this week's episode. Hey, next week, I'm excited. Another great one. Just saying, next week, I got the winner of the 2002 PGA Championship, 
Rich Beam, guy I met recently on a golf trip. He is a funny cat. We have a great conversation about the arc of success in the athletic world and where he finds meaning in his golf today. Folks, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, as I've mentioned, your reviews and ratings make a huge difference. They do. If there's more ratings, people take this more seriously. They're more apt to listen to it and share it with their friends. So do leave a rating and a review. And speaking of your friends, a reminder, if you found this episode specifically interesting for your Gen X colleagues, if you're a Gen Xer, by all means, share this episode with three friends you went to grade school or high school or college with. Thanks again for sticking around to the end. I appreciate it. Also, thank you to my editor, producer, and friend, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.